Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You know, it's not unusual, in fact, it's pretty common, for sometime during any given week for there to be a shot of the old city of Jerusalem in the background as a uh, network news reporter offers a story either about Israel or the surrounding countries. Often these news reporters are based in Jerusalem, and the old city serves as a wonderful backdrop for their reporting. The old city of Jerusalem is uh, marked by two or three major religious sites. The Church of the Annunciation serves as a uh, shrine for many different uh, Christian groups and many different uh, ethnic perspectives. The Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque serve as central foci for Muslims. Certainly the Dome of the Rock is um, purported to be the place where Muhammad uh, mounted his uh, steed and ascended to heaven. And the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque are on the Temple Mount, that um, physical structure which Herod built to support his building of the Second Temple. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the sites of Jews, uh, Israelis, and some non-Jews offering prayers at what's called the Western Wall, the Foundation Wall of the Temple Mount, the last remaining vestige of the um, second temple built by Herod. And while there are other archaeological uh, excavations uh, that show the construct of the temple mount, such as the southern portico, the wall is purported to be that spot which was closest to where the temple stood. I don't want to speak to you about the politics of the temple this morning. Perhaps we can chat about that on another Sunday morning. But rather, I want to talk with you about the notion of the temple and its meaning in Jewish religious life and pose a couple of questions related to the notion of holy space. As I've already indicated, the Beit HaMikdash, the temple in Jerusalem, is considered the holiest place in the world for many Jews. But you know that within each Jewish community, whether in Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, small Jewish communities like Kingston, there are synagogues that are also regarded as holy places. The rendering of these places, synagogues, temples, as holy, is for, many, is for many based on the assumption that God is uniquely present within them. But in Jewish tradition, two questions need to be addressed in relation to the concept of holy places. 
First, we believe that God is present everywhere. How then could tradition suggest that God is present in any particular location, suggesting God's absence in another location? And secondly, more challenging question, why would an infinite and omnipresent God wish to confine himself, as it were, within the boundaries of space? Why did God designate certain places as holier than others? That's what I want to chat with you about this morning. And what might be some of the applications of the holiness associated with uh, Mishkan as it applies to Jewish life today. So as always, let's begin with the text. And this morning we're going to begin with Shmot Kaf Hey, Exodus 25. Let me begin by reading a little bit to you. My pages are stuck together. Good. Exodus 25. God spoke to Moses saying, tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts. You shall accept gifts for me from every person whose heart so moves him. And these are the gifts that you shall accept from them, gold and silver and copper, blue, purple and crimson yarns, fine linen goat's hair, tanned ram skins, dolphin skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the aromatic uh, incense, lapis lazuli and other stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Let me read that again. And let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Exactly as I show you the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, so shall you make them. And one more comment. Exodus 40, verse 34. When Moses finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the presence of God filled the tabernacle. So there you are. That's the beginning of it. Yes? In Exodus 25, God commands the Jewish people to construct a mikdash, a tabernacle. The mikdash was to consist of the mishkan and all of its furnishings. And it was to be an elaborate structure that required a great deal of resources and work. And you heard that expressed in Exodus. The purpose of the mikdash was that God could dwell among them. And this is restated in Exodus 40, verse 34, which I read to you. The presence of God filled the tabernacle. 
implying that God's presence is in some sense confined to the precincts of the Mikdash. But don't you find that rather perplexing? Does that mean in the absence of a Mikdash, God does not dwell among the Jewish people? Is God not everywhere? Does God need a special place to meet with his people? So, this is not a mere theological question. There are verses in the entire Tanakh that seem to offer contradictory perspectives on this matter. I'm going to turn to Kings 8 now, verse 27. Now, this text describes King Solomon's prayer at the completion, at the construction of the first Beit HaMikdash, the first temple in Jerusalem, approximately 400 years after the conquest of the land by Joshua. As always on our show on Sunday morning, we're not going to argue with the traditional historicity of the text or how dates are consigned to biblical events, we're going to accept it as the tradition offers it to us. So, as I said, this is Solomon's prayer. I'm going to read starting in verse 26. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let the promise you made to your servant, my father David, be fulfilled. But will God really dwell on earth? Even the heavens to their uttermost reaches cannot contain you. How much less this house I that I have built? Listen to it again. But will God really dwell on earth? Even the heavens to their uttermost reaches cannot contain you, O God. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon, while praising God for providing him with this extraordinary opportunity, wondered out loud, and the author of the text gives it to us, how is it possible that God, who cannot be contained by the uttermost reaches of heaven, could be contained by a building constructed by a mere mortal. So how do we reconcile these texts, these verses? You know, on numerous occasions, I've quoted to you the Midrash, a compilation of different religious commentaries. I'm going to quote again from uh, Midrash, compiled between the 6th and 10th century in Eretz Yisrael. We're never quite sure of the dating of these Midrashim, that's the plural of Midrash, because they come to us as a compilation. So here it's written in the 6th to 10th century, probably closer to the 10th. Here it is written, Behold the heaven and and the heavens of heaven cannot contain thee. That's what I've just read to you. While elsewhere in Torah it is written, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. That's from Exodus. So Rabbi Joshua of Sakin, in the name of Rabbi Levi, said, To what can this be compared? Now listen carefully to this metaphor. 
to a cave on the seashore. The sea rushes forth and floods the cave, yet the sea is not diminished. Similarly, though the glory of God filled the tabernacle, neither the heaven nor earth was deprived of the splendor of God's presence. So I hope you have that image in mind that you're visiting a cave on the shore of the sea and water rushes in and out and floods the cave and you see the cave filled with water. But you know in your heart that the ocean has not been diminished by the water being contained within the cave. Similarly, the rabbi says, the glory of God filled the tabernacle, neither the heaven nor earth were deprived of the splendor of God's presence. So you can see how the Midrash tries to reconcile these contradictory perceptions. God's presence is indeed everywhere. However, just as a storm causes a sea to fill a nearby cave with a sudden rush of water, while remaining undiminished, so too God's presence fills the Mishkan without becoming diminished elsewhere. Now, we all agree that this analogy is imperfect, as technically there is less water in the sea when the water fills the cave. It nevertheless tries to resolve the tension between the idea that God can be in a particular place and the problem of rendering other places godless. The concept of a unique divine presence in the Mikdash is difficult to comprehend. The Midrash wishes to explain one aspect of the theological dilemma produced by the text's intention. Does God's powerful presence in the tabernacle or the temple diminish God's presence elsewhere? The metaphor suggests that the answer is no. God's presence continues to exist throughout the world, even when at the same time it is concentrated, if you will, in the temple. In essence, this teaching is that God's presence is actually not contained in a limiting sense when it dwells within the walls of a building, such as the temple or synagogue. In addition, perhaps the text wishes to describe the sensation of God's presence that a human being would have when entering the Mishkan or Mikdash rather than an actual measurable physical presence. Now think about that again. The ancient text talks about God's presence, essence, filling the Mikdash. But perhaps this Midrash is leading to the notion that when we enter a holy place, the sensation of God's presence is accessible to us rather than trying to measure the physical presence of the deity. In fact, the actual wording of 25.8 seems to emphasize the notion that rather than dwelling in the Mishkan itself, God would dwell betocham, in their midst among the people. God's presence would be felt in the midst of the camp of Israel when they had completed building a house of God. And while this text may answer one theological question, 
it does not address the question of the purpose of God's commanding that a unique dwelling be created for God. So I have discussed so far how God can simultaneously be everywhere but still be uniquely present in certain places as the text suggests. Let me now try and use our Jewish text to explain why God might have demanded that a sanctuary be built for him. And what was the significance of the Mishkan? And how might that notion that God dwelled within it be understood? I'm going to return now to the text again. This time we're going to go back to Exodus. Exodus 19, one of the most powerful sections in Torah. For Exodus 19 is about the revelation. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone forth from the land of Egypt, that very day they entered the wilderness of Sinai. And on the third day, as morning dawned there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud blast of the horn, and all the people trembled. And a dense cloud, and all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp toward God, and they took their places at the foot of the mountain. So you have the picture. Yes? You know what's happening here. Uh... Let's go on for a moment to Exodus 24. So you hear again this notion of God in a place. Good. Okay. When Moses had ascended the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain. Listen carefully. The presence of the Lord abode on Mount Sinai, and the cloud hid it for six days on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. Now the presence of God appeared in the sight of the Israelites as a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Moses went inside the cloud and ascended the mountain. And Moses returned from the mountain 40 days. He remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now we are told, as you heard, that the people trembled as they camped at the mountain. And we are told in the text how the presence of God abode on Mount Sinai and hid it for six days. Now, you cannot avoid the obvious parallel between the description of the revelation in Mount Sinai and the building of the Mishkan. What is the message that Torah is attempting to convey in this parallelism, listen to 40, verse 34, again in Exodus, so that you hear clearly this parallelism. Always a difficult task to get to the text in a quick amount of time. Good. When Moses had finished the work, namely the building of the tabernacle, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle, just like at Sinai. 
Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on the various journeys, but if the cloud did not lift, they would not set out until such time as it did lift. For over the tabernacle, a cloud of the Lord rested by night and fire would appear in it by night. A rested cloud of the Lord by day, rested by day, and fire would appear in it by night in view of all the house of Israelite throughout their journeys. So, the tabernacle and Sinai seem to have some commonality. What is the Torah trying to tell us? Let me share with you the words of a more modern commentator, Umberto Casuto, who is uh, speaking about the directions for the construction of the tabernacle. He's actually an Italian biblical scholar. Let me quote him. In order to understand the significance and purpose of the tabernacle, we must realize that the children of Israel, after they had been privileged to witness the revelation of God on Mount Sinai in chapter 19 of Exodus, were about to journey from there and thus draw away from the site of the theophany. So long as they were encamped in the place, they conscious of God's nearest. But once they set out on the journey, it seemed to them that the link had been broken. Unless they were in the midst of a tangible symbol of God's presence among them. It was the function of the tabernacle, Mishkan, literally a dwelling, to serve as such a symbol. Not without reason, therefore, does this section come immediately after the section, namely the building of the tabernacle, comes immediately after the section describing the making of the covenant at Mount Sinai. The nexus between Israel and the tabernacle is a perpetual extension of the bond that was forged at Sinai between the Jewish people and their God, the covenant. The children of Israel dwelling in tribal order at every encampment are able to see from every side the tabernacle standing in the midst of the camp. And the vis very visible presence of the sanctuary proves to them that just as the glory of Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, so he dwells in their midst wherever they wander. This is the importance of 25.8 when it states, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, but toham that I may dwell among them. This is the significance of the clear parallelism between the last sentences of the section describing Mount Sinai and the closing passage of Exodus, which depicts in like terms how the divine presence abode in the tabernacle. It appears that the construction of the Mishkan may not only have served as a reminder of God's general purpose, presence in the midst of the people, but also as a reenactment of the unforgettable event at Mount Sinai. Additionally, the building of the Mishkan was more than a one-time Sinai-like experience. The Mishkan accompanied the Israelite in their journeys throughout the wilderness and was finally given a permanent home after they had settled in their homeland. Thus, unlike Sinai, which was a brief moment in the history of Israel, God's presence in the Mishkan would be a permanent inspiration. 
The Mishkan was in effect an enduring, mobile Mount Sinai. With its completion, the nation was able to sense God's imminence and with its establishment in their midst, God's presence in all its glory would be felt among them, guiding and protecting them always. This is such a powerful image that God's presence is palpable to the people of Israel at Sinai, and they need to create a reminder of exactly what that presence felt like. I resonate with that picture. It seems to me that all too often when we build synagogues or perhaps even churches, we think of them as a statement of glory to God rather than a statement of how, in Jewish terms, this is an opportunity for us to recreate our connection with the Jewish experience at Sinai. Let me end with this quote from the Babylonian Talmud. Ravine, son of Rav Abda, in the name of Rav Isaac, declared, from where do we know that God is present in a synagogue? We know this since it is written in Psalms 82.1, God stands amidst the congregation of the Lord. In Ezekiel 11, God says, I shall make for them a small sanctuary. This refers, according to um, Rabbi Isaac, back to what I just read, this refers to the synagogues and houses of study. Synagogues are sanctuaries in miniature where it is possible to serve God through God's presence. Those who enter such a sanctuary come to feel the closeness of God. Today, synagogues serve as vehicles for accessing, accessing this sense of closeness and as temples, as a mikdash in miniature. They include architectural reminders of the temple itself. They include the holy ark, the eternal light, and this is, in Jewish thinking, why synagogue buildings are so important. Not because they glorify God, but because they allow us to feel the presence of God just as we did at Mount Sinai. I hope when you go to church that you feel the presence of God and you feel, as the Jew does, that the building is simply a locus for us to express our closeness to the most important events in our religious history, the formative events. For we, the Jewish people, the most formative event was Sinai, the Mishkan, the sanctuary, the synagogue, in a historical perspective. 
is our lasting and eternal reminder of the power of that revelation at Sinai. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, this is Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you a good day. Shalom.